Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. You may locate these texts in your pew Bible on page 914. First, let us prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, "'son of the Most High God? "'I adjure you by God, do not torment me.' For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, and were drowned in the sea. The swineherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So a few weeks ago, my wife Carol and I, we went to see the movie Just Mercy, I had read the book already, but was still unprepared. It's a story of Walter McMillan, who was a man of color convicted of a crime of which he was innocent. You know, we've learned in this country, often with scientific proof, that that happens far more than we would like to think. After decades, McMillan at last tasted freedom, and it was hard not to be moved in watching this story because to be free is one of the most basic human yearnings. Tara Westover, 
She grew up in a fundamentalist Mormon family. They were suspicious of government and medicine. They buried canned peaches in preparation for the apocalypse, and they rejected public education as a plot to destroy faith. But young Tara wanted to go to school. She had to tell her abusive father. She writes it this way, Dad was resting on the couch, his Bible propped open on his lap. I blurted out what I came to say, Dad, I want to go to school. He seemed not to have heard me. Dad, I've prayed and I want to go to school. Finally, Dad looked up and straight ahead, looking past me. In this family, he said, we obey the commandments of the Lord. She said, I turned to leave, but before I reached the doorway, Dad spoke again. You remember, you remember Jacob and Esau, don't you? I remember, I said. I did not need him to explain. I knew what the story meant. It meant that I was not the daughter he had raised, the daughter of faith. I was wanting to sell my birthright for a mess of pottage. What her father saw as pottage, Tara recognized as freedom, a way out. She wasn't able to enter a school classroom until she went to college, but she went to college and did quite well. Freedom is a basic human yearning, and Stories of finding freedom are all through Scripture as, as, as people in Scripture are constantly hitting the road in search. Uh, Abraham leaves the life that he has known to journey to a land that only God can show him. Joseph is thrown away by his jealous brothers, but along the way discovers who he really is in this world. Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, casting off the Pharaoh's dust behind them. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they drop their nets to follow to unknown destinations to discover freedom along the way. The prodigal, he doesn't know where it is. It's just not here under daddy's roof, and so he heads off. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem... They wave palm branches, symbols of national liberation, like they're welcoming General Washington home from the war. I could go on, but you get it. The, the most common yearning in the human spirit is to be free. But, but what is it to be free, actually, for you and me? What, what is it to be free? And what is the source of that freedom? Andrew Basevich, he's a retired Army colonel. He's a professor of international relations at Boston University. Basevich says, sometimes freedom is talked about less as a value or a word with actual content, but it's more like an incantation or a cheer. Something like rock, chalk, jayhawk. <laughs> After all these years, I still have no idea what that means. But I, I know for some of you, this is a hymn of praise, and so I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. 
What do we mean when we say freedom? Freedom is a political condition, no doubt. During the colonial period, do you remember this from your middle school civics classes? Patrick Henry urged us to throw off the tyranny of England. Give me liberty or give me death, he said. For apart from liberty, we are left in slavery. That was his word choice, an ironic choice, since Patrick Henry is reported to have owned 80 human beings in slavery over his life. So if he could not be surprised, or should not be surprised, if 60 years later, Frederick Douglass asked, what is to the American slave this 4th of July? It is a day, Douglass says, that reveals the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. Your celebration is not of liberty. It is a sham, Douglas declared. If Patrick Henry declared freedom as throwing off the yoke of tyranny and participating in democracy, Douglas points out that unless democracy includes everyone, it can be a form of tyranny itself. But some have argued that freedom is, is not really about us. It's, it's about me. It has to be about me. British philosopher John Stuart Mill, he said it this way, I cannot be free unless over my life and choices I am sovereign. My choices must be unencumbered, Mill says. I can only be free if I can do whatever I want. Sounding a bit like Mill, John Steinbeck in East of Eden he wrote, the free, exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. And this I would fight for, the freedom of the mind to take any direction undirected. I must fight against any idea, any religion, any government which limits the individual. So, how do you think of it? What does it mean for us? We're not in prison. We're not in captured by some fundamentalist society. We, what does it mean? And what is its source? When I, when I was growing up, when I was growing up on occasion, I pushed back against the oppressive regime of my parents. I pointed out that their backward rules about curfew or chores or whatnot were oppressive and under their weight I was in bondage. My parents, my parents displayed a shocking lack of concern regarding my plight, to which I very reasonably offered a perfectly justifiable sense of outrage to which they responded, and you know this, as long as you live in our house, what? You will abide by our rules. I didn't like that. But I remember the day when in the driveway there was a car. Now, 
it was a 67 Mercury station wagon with wood grain paneling on the side. It was in such bad shape, it could, it could actually be considered total if it had a flat tire or was out of gas. But it was mine, and it ran sometimes. And I, I remember pulling out of the driveway, feeling like Abraham himself, with Dad's uh, house in the rearview mirror, heading out to who knows where. But I was free. It felt great. You've been there. But, but I'm convinced of this. As great as that is, Freedom's different than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. So what is it exactly? Andrew Basevich says we don't examine this too much, that it's more just an incantation, a cheer. Freedom is political, yes. It is spiritual, yes. It's economic, yes. But as I read the Christian story of faith, As I understand it, freedom stands in tension a bit with this current notion that to be free, we have to be individuals, independent from one another. I'm not so sure about that. Freedom starts with being free from Pharaoh, tyranny, oppression from anything that withers human flourishing. But true freedom, I think, must ultimately be freedom for purpose, responsibility, calling. And I'm not sure that freedom, freedom for, is ever something we discover alone. I think it is something we share. At least that's how I read this rather, rather weird story in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus left the familiar hills of Israel and crossed over, it said, to Gentile territory, the Gerasenes. You can tell it's Gentile territory because there are pig farmers everywhere, and you're not going to find that in kosher Galilee. There he is met by a man who is possessed by a legion of demons, unclean spirits. He howls through the night. He injures himself. He is forced to live in a cemetery, the symbolism of which cannot be missed. He's as good as dead to everybody around him because they're afraid of him. They're afraid of him and when you're afraid it's hard to treat your neighbor like a neighbor. But Jesus does what Jesus does. He looks through all of that chaos and sees a human being in there and he casts out the demons and leaves this man in his right mind. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but what do, you, what do you think the Bible is talking about when it talks about demons or unclean spirits? What, 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 what is that? I'll tell you what I don't believe it is. I don't believe it's some ghost-like spirit that infects us with evil powers. I, I don't think it's some kind of 
something that we are overtaken with. But I have seen circumstances and powers that erode and attack human thriving. And that's demonic. In that way, the power of poverty can be considered demonic. In that way, the realities of illness, certainly fear, can be considered, considered demonic. Our own selfishness. Demons are any condition that dehumanize us, any circumstance that attacks human flourishing. It's why Jesus did battle with them. And perhaps, perhaps one of the most common forms of demon are those from our past, are those failures, those disappointments, those moments of injury we all carry, and sometimes it seems impossible to shake. 19, in 1913, Theodore Roosevelt, he set out with only a handful of travelers to explore an ink-black thousand-mile-long tributary of the Amazon called the River of Doubt, of all things. It snaked its way through uncharted regions of the Brazilian rainforest. The risk of this journey were significant, and Roosevelt almost lost his life, which may have been the point, actually. For you see, he was on a quest because the year before, Roosevelt had left the Republican Party and ran for president for an unprecedented third term in a newly formed party. He took onward Christian soldiers as his marching hymn, and he told his supporters they were facing Armageddon, of all things. He was crushed in a, th a three-way race when Woodrow Wilson was elected. Failure was not something to which the old bull moose was accustomed so Roosevelt, fearing that failure would define him, he set out to chart the river of doubt. And to a friend he said, you don't know how lonely it is to be rejected by your own people. You know, this may be maybe the most common form of battling demons, the demons of our yesterdays where we embarrassed ourselves, where we injured others, where we have a hard time letting it go? Well, I don't know the cemetery man's story, but like Roosevelt, he knows the loneliness of being rejected by his own. He lives among the tombs, dead to his community, but Jesus is all about raising people from the dead. And so Jesus looks through all that chaos and he sees a human being in there. And for the first time, this touch of mercy leaves this man in his right mind and he is free. And it's a good place for the story to start. I think if I had been writing it, we would have stopped right there. He's in his right mind, his, he's free, all is well, we can go to lunch now. But the story doesn't stop there. Uh, the, the people, the people of, the, of the community, they see what Jesus has done, and surprisingly, it just terrifies them. Uh, 
Maybe it's because they see that Jesus has power to deal with what they lack power to do. And power by itself is not comforting. So they asked Jesus to leave their neighborhood. That's the way it's translated, leave our neighborhood. I love that. And he will. But first he gives the cemetery man a job. Now this man comes to Jesus. He's healed. He's the demons cast out. He comes to Jesus and says, I want to go with you. I want to be with you. Of course he does. Jesus is the first one to see him as he really is, to set him free, to recognize him as one deserving mercy. I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. Now, this is odd. Because for four chapters, Jesus has been walking up to everybody saying, you come with me, you come and follow me, you come and follow me, come and follow me. And for the first time, he gets a volunteer and he says, no, you can't come. What is that about? If I understand it, it's not enough for the man to be freed from his demons. He has to be freed for his purpose, for his ministry. He has to restore his broken community. He has to be alive to those who thought he was dead. Jesus tells him to go back. Go back and tell them, those who thought this was just an act of power, that this is actually an act of mercy. It is a resurrection. Go back to those who chained you, who overlooked you, those who cast you out. Go back and discover them as your friends, Jesus says. It's a simple, but unless I miss it, I don't think he can be free just being freed from the demons. He has to be free to community, for relationship. He can't be home unless he's at home with them. Well, so here I am, like halfway through. There's a lot more I want to say about this, but I'm not going to say it all today. That's the good news for you today. I'm not going to say it all today, but I want you to come back because I think this is important. Freedom, it's... I don't know if it's an incantation or not, a cheer, but as Jesus understood it, I think it is life-saving and resurrecting, and I think it has been forgotten in our world, and it's important for us to remember. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe, help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.